Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. Where there is doubt, true faith in you. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there's despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And where there's sadness, ever joy. O Spirit, grant that I may never seek so much as to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. Make me a channel of your peace, for it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, in giving of ourselves that we receive, My guest today is a poet, an artist, an ordained Anglican deacon, and the professor of English at Northwest University here in Seattle, Jeremiah Webster. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's a joy to be here. Yeah, man. It's awesome to have you. Been looking forward to this a lot. Friendship has been one of the unexpected graces of COVID land, so. Yeah, that's true. We are true. We're genuine, like... COVID friends. COVID buddies. Yeah. <laughs> In the pool. <laughs> Find your COVID buddy. <laughs> oh, man. You know, yeah, COVID hasn't been all bleak. It's been, mm -hmm. it, it, at least, yeah, that, that part's been a, a rich part for it's sure. True. It's true. Yeah. This song, it, it, I mean, this is the thing that maybe a lot of people know, but maybe not a lot of people know, is uh, not, those words were not penned by St. Francis himself. Right. I was looking into it specifically earlier today, just trying to like get my facts. Um, I was surprised even knowing that Francis didn't write it, that it was so recent. Um, like it came about in the early 20th century. Have you found the rationale for that? Was it to associate <laughs> the lyrics with a, a notable name or? It was at one point. So my, this is my understanding and people can fact check I, this. I actually should know this as an ordained <laughs> really? yeah, deacon. Yeah, you're the deacon <laughs> and the We're English professor. minds want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was originally written in France and the originally, or in French by someone in France, the original author is unknown and it made its way to the Pope at some point. Is that right? It was published in like a local Catholic journal, mm -hmm. made its way to the Pope. It ended up getting published uh, a few years later, I believe, um, like in like a, a broader Catholic journal. Yeah. Um, at some point, it had been translated from French into Latin. Mm -hmm. And then on the back of uh, an image of Francis or like an icon. And it wasn't until probably 10, 15 years later that the person who translated it into English, translated it into English. And I think just at that point, the association, like you had Francis on the front, the words on the back, it's like, oh, it's the prayer of St. Francis. Before that, it was called the prayer for peace, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, whoever the translator was, like, thank you for translating that. But then also, like, I guess you didn't have the, the internet at your fingertips at that point. You could go check sources and like where this thing came from. I, I, I tell my students the monks of Alexandria would weep at the access we have to this, you know, this sort of data, this sort of information. It's, <laughs> and it's great. And then weep even more when they realize what we do what with we it. What we do with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, congrats on the record. And uh, it's it's been rich to listen to. And when you inquired and asked me what song I wanted to to talk to you about this one, it was was immediate in my mind. Yeah, tell me about that because that actually kind of took me by surprise. Oh, well, good. <laughs> I uh, well, I, I want to explore with you the 
kind of the the aesthetic grandeur of this song hmm. and then talk theologically with you about it. What I can bring to the table is, you know, I'm going to go literary critic on everyone, so forgive me. Go 1970s, 1980s, we have this movement called Deconstruction. This is Leotard. This is Derrida. This is Foucault. Wait, no, no. That's been happening. <laughs> this is like the last few years, bro. <laughs> it's a little further back than that. But, um, but, but an interrogation and a suspicion of what, what language is capable of, right? Leotard says postmodernism is an incredulity towards meta narratives, questioning the grand narrative, the grand theme. And part of my work, uh, part of my punk rock is resisting that a little bit. Not that I don't think that they have meaningful things to bring to the table and to the dialogue. But I'm all about interconnectivity, uh, syncretism, synchronicity between things. Uh, I'm a student of John Muir uh, in his in his journals. When we pick out anything by itself, we found find it is bound with a thousand invisible cables that cannot be broken to everything else in the universe. Mm. So I listen to your record, and I'm thinking W. H. Auden and the More Loving One and T. S. Eliot, which we've been talking about mm. in four quartets. That there's mm. no competition. There's only the fight to recover what's been lost. Um, and so I, I, I have to kind of think about this song in, in light of these other, these other voices, Julian of Norwich and the interior castle, uh, is another voice that kind of is, is echoing in my mind as I listen to the record. And, uh, and then we have, you know, this, this, these lyrics attributed to St. Francis erroneously, apparently, <laughs> but that, that sort of, uh, interplay and that sort of, that sort of play with the way in which, you know, these great, this great cloud of witnesses is still speaking and speaking through your record and and influencing your own art. That's really interesting to me from an mm. aesthetic level. I mean, he's my guy. T.S. Eliot writes an essay called Tradition and the Individual Talent, where he essentially says anything you make has to be kind of put up for review by the great cloud of witnesses, right? Mm. Uh, have you written a good poem? Well, how does it compare to Bill Shakespeare? How does it compare to, you know, Byron and Keats and Shelley and, you know, uh, Emily Dickinson? And uh, that's sort of the litmus test of like, have you done good work? And that can be like, devastating <laughs> I was gonna say that, <laughs> like, that's that's not be, overwhelming at all like, <laughs> crippling to any desire to 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 go on but at the same time i think it's a it's a useful metric for how we think about art and what it what it does you know anytime i sit down to write a song there's bob dylan in my mind you know <laughs> yeah there's sufjan stevens like and tom york tom tom man tom york arcade fire is going to come up i think inevitably mm. So I'm interested just in the aesthetic uh, kind of work of because I, uh, you know, I'm I'm deeply persuaded that, especially in some American evangelical circles, beauty becomes accessory, becomes maybe even optional, and uh, mm -hmm. we've really relegated it to the margins. When I think it, it should be front and center, when I think of people who've had radical encounters with with the living God, it's primarily been through the aesthetic moment. It's been through beauty. Quick story, if, I, if we have time, as a dear friend of mine, draft dodger during Vietnam, makes a run for the border, is in a hostel in Canada. True story. Uh, I don't know if he wants me to tell him his name. Uh, I'll, I'll, names are, names are- He can are, remain anonymous. He'll yeah. be home being anonymous. But, um, you know, he's there in a hostel. He uh, doesn't know what he believes about anything. He goes to see a Shakespearean play, one of the tragedies. And uh, this is in the dim and distant past before the internet. But there's one of the characters in the play gives a line from scripture, right? And uh, <laughs> this is compelling to him. And he knows it's from the Bible, but he doesn't know where. Can't Google it. So he goes back to the hostel, finds a Bible, reads the whole thing. <laughs> and through that aesthetic experience of the bard, this Elizabethan poet, he, uh, he, en he encounters the gospel. That's compelling to me in a way that a, a lot of the evangelism that I, I experienced firsthand, the kind of, you know, very pragmatic, here's five points uh, to get to Jesus, it really stands in defiance of that mm -hmm. and is so much more compelling to me. And I, th I, think, I think your song participates in that, in that economy, for lack of a better word. And so I guess, I guess what, I'm, what I'm getting is how aware are you as an artist of, of, I mean, Harold Bloom calls it the anxiety of influence. How, how like cognizant are you, or do you just have to kind of put that in the closet and just ignore it when you're writing a song? Um, is it inspiring or is it, does it kind of leave you in a sort of paralysis? It can leave you in a state of paralysis really quick. At least in my experience as a songwriter, 
so much of how I explored my own voice was through the voice of others. And so my early stuff, I grew up listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Mm. The first song I ever wrote was just highly derivative of something uh, that could have been on the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young four-way street which was a live album that Mm -hmm. my dad was super into Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. we listened to a lot driving around and so you're just kind of working out those ideas and then you listen to a whole bunch of stuff it all goes in there Mm -hmm. and it all comes out in different ways philosophically i'll say this the best way to handle it is to not worry about it and just write and write a lot Mm. but i don't do that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think there are some songwriters who do but i also know some amazing songwriters who don't you know they they hone in on on an idea until it's done aesthetically this album for me was really about trying to not worry about aesthetics if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. because it becomes overwhelming and i had been i'd come out of you know a long period of writer's block and Mm -hmm. so that wasn't I knew if I was going to write any songs, I had to stop caring. Mm. But I also, at the same time, had to lean into my own voice. Mm -hmm. What works? Where am I as a human? Where am I in my own story? And try and live in that space and let that come out through the writing. Mm-hmm. There've been few points in my life where I think I could do that. And that was, that was one. And there was just so many things happening. You know, we were on lockdown. Suddenly I'm home. All my instruments are here. So I could take a break and work out, you know, a song or a part of a song. I could demo it. But then so many other things were happening. I was still and have been sorting through my Mars Hill experience, Mm -hmm. but then all the other things culturally that were happening in that moment, George Floyd presidential election. Which is a different kind of influence. That's a cultural influence, a current event sort of influence. um, And a deeply- say nothing of the the tradition, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. These were all things that were troubling to me and like deeply troubling. Like my initial, talk about aesthetics, (laughs) my initial concept for this song's role on the record was to juxtapose this prayer against the backdrop of a Trump rally. Which when you first told me, I was like, yes, do it. And then you explained all the reasons why that wasn't the direction yeah. that you went on the record, which, and, which also resonate. Yeah. And, you know, it wouldn't have worked. The, like the, the record isn't that punk rock, you know, like, <laughs> um, <laughs> though I think that I love the juxtaposition of that. I think that idea is really cool. I think someone should do that. (laughs) But aesthetically, so, I mean, it was an aesthetic decision that moved us away from that because the emotional tenor of the rest of the album, by by the point that we got to this song, it was actually fairly late in the process. And I knew that I wanted it to be on there. I didn't actually have music for it. I just knew that I... I think this song is important. I think culturally we need it, especially in evangelicalism. So Ryan and I were talking about it in the studio one day towards the end of a recording session. And he just kind of sat down with the guitar and and essentially just banged out the, you know, those two chords, that progression. And I loved the feel of it. And I thought that is actually right where this song needs to be. I took that, took, I think, like a little recording of it, uh, brought it home, started working it out, figured out what the chorus was going to be and how, and then we recorded it soon after that. So, was the spareness there from the beginning? Were you just like, this needs to be a yeah really stripped down? Yeah. It, bones. it just, that's all it needed to be. And, you know, that the acoustic guitar part is so pretty. And so, it didn't need much. You know, some of the other songs we struggled a lot more with like, okay, what goes here? Like, don't let the fear, we were figuring out the lead guitar parts and that at the 11th hour. Mm. 
But Prayer of St. Francis, it needed more space. It needed that ambience. So there's those those really spacey guitars happening in, in the background. Early on, we had some like really cool analog synthy stuff, doing some like pitch bends on some really kind of warm Prophet 600 kind of sounds, which was cool, but maybe a little bit more Tom York than it wanted to be or than, than I should be, because I easily go there. <laughs> and so it was just kind of like, let the song be what it is, you know, and, and don't overthink it and don't overdo it. me this song is the the, mu- the musicality of it is so beautifully wedded to to the message and and i'm, I'm with you like I, I wish i'd been there to kind of hear that line being played because it is so perfect for the lyric and also is this invitation to just sit down <laughs> like mm-hmm. be still my soul like take some time to really contemplate all the things you just surveyed that are, are profoundly distressing makes me want to put down my phone mm. <laughs> Uh, be attentive in a way that that is outside of of the kind of Pavlovian training of of all this technology, and uh, and really take heed of those words, right? Which I think is an ambitious prayer, and also a prayer that should be, I don't, shouldn't be as, as subversive as it seems in our moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I would hope that the majority of Christians I know would be like, Amen, like, yeah, but. Increasingly, I'm like, I don't know, like this, this, this might be too much. Like, this, <laughs> uh, we might have moved so far off of uh, what we might name orthodoxy that, uh, it, and I'm speaking only of kind of the mm-hmm. the American religion. This is what Harold Bloom calls it, or uh, Cornell West speaks so beautifully about this this tension of the Constantinian impulse of a lot of manifestations of Christianity so wedded to to the state, up and against this this prophetic, you know. Uh, beautiful kind of servant servant oriented love thy neighbor gospel i think that i just i love how the the song resides in that space and uh and and beckons listeners into it and i, I see the music really really accompanying that beautifully so yeah that's just a compliment there's, well, <laughs> there's no question there <laughs> thank you sir <laughs> well no but i think I guess, I guess, is, is, is that reading, is that resonated at all with you or are yeah. you like, man, this guy is definitely an English professor? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, this guy is definitely an English professor, but that's what I love. You see things uh, in a way that, that I just don't <laughs> because, you know, you're educated um, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a, I'm a, a life long do it yourself or actually at the level of education i'm at it's just a liability (laughs) (laughs) well but okay so you're cluing into something though let me come at it from this angle yeah what the album needed was a way to center itself before it pivoted to songs that were going to move more into where do we go from here because the flow of the album changes once you get to this song every song before this with the exception of blue skies but blue skies is there kind of as the um if we think liturgically for a moment it's the creation it's a prelude it's a prelude yeah and and then half light is just this tear down of certainty fear and love is a concerned letter to the church uh all i want is home is just living in a moment of isolation and depression. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want the whole album to be there. I didn't also want to just like resolve it on everything's okay because it's not and that's not where I'm at. But I do want, I did want to set an orientation in a different direction because I I do think that at least for me and uh, talking with 
uh, with Levi McAllister recently uh, about the song Half Light, both of us kind of finding resonance in the person of Christ and the pursuit of Christ, even once our whole kind of world of our of faith had fallen apart. Mm-hmm. And finding that curious and finding that this thing that we're just constantly wrestling with. And I knew that while I wanted to be very honest about where I've been, I also wanted to be very honest about how I'm thinking about where to go. And not so much from the prepositional, like, here's my new systematic theology. I think we're all grateful. Those of us who have listened <laughs> yeah, to, no, to the record that I'm horrible at that anyway. There wasn't but... an altar call at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Something of that nature. <laughs> and so, more so just like a, I'm a human just trying to work this out every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure about a lot, but I know that I still find Christ compelling. And I think this prayer is also very compelling. I guess, do you see the song as a creed? Is it your creed? Like, is it a creed for you? Is it something you can oh, sort of yeah, so this is what fall back in the midst, you know, of this pageantry of, I don't know what this is, or this certainly seems antithetical to what I know to be true about this compelling Jesus is, is, are these lyrics something you can kind of reside in? Yes. But it's not so much a creed. I was thinking about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm very curious your thoughts on this, just as an English professor and as a deacon. When I think about a creed, so like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or anything that we reach back to kind of regularly in kind of church calendar liturgies, the creeds have a way of trying to distill the core essence of what we believe this song is not trying to do that and so i think this song is stands aside from the creeds in that way and the way i view it is it's trying to just operate at a human level in response to who we see christ being and then at our core like in our character and what's curious to me about this song so I sung this song before I came to Mars Hill. I sung this song many times at Mars Hill, and it's on an album that you have a history I, with this song that I put on after Mars Hill in my processing of Mars Hill. And at every point, this song has had resonance for me, and I find it curious that it lived in all of those contexts, and it still lives, and I still find it meaningful. And I think that those words are very necessary. It's funny. You want to like treat it like it's some ancient prayer, but it was written in the early 1900s. So it's not that ancient, but it's tapping into something that's very ancient. And I think that's why it's it's worked the way it has for so many people. Talk to me about uh, the amendments that you made, though. So, ah, Lord, yeah. make me a channel of your peace, which to, to my recollection, actually, it's make me an instrument make of your me peace, an instrument. which the poet in me, there's, there's a richness there. Yeah. That one was less, so that one was less intentional. Some, at some point in some version of it that we sung over the years, someone did that and I, I just picked it up. So, I think that one's more of an artifact, but there's another one. And that is when we get to what I turned into the chorus. So the original reads, O divine master, grant that I uh, may not so much seek to be consoled. Mm -hmm. Again, put it back in the context of George Floyd. And I'm, I'm looking at that word master. And there's just no way I could ever ask somebody to sing that who has been harmed by slavery or today is living under the effects of latent white supremacy and systemic racism. It's just not a word, like, well, I get it. Like, there is a certain beauty to, oh, oh divine master, because you can even make the argument that, okay, there have been cruel masters sure. here, and that is not God. Absolutely. But I think that that's academic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think someone's lived experience matters a lot. And it's a, it's also like, isn't it time that we start addressing this stuff as the church? Why is that so controversial? <laughs> Why is that so hard? And I, I feel like it's the least that 
I could have done <laughs> in this song, like in that moment, is just to have some sensitivity and say, like, oh yeah, that would be problematic. Like if I was, if I, if my skin was a different color, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that word would be problematic. I, I agree, and and as a deacon, I I see increasingly um, ways in which just terminology like woke is a sort of exit for people, right? Yeah. If I have even the hint that something is woke, then I can just divest myself of that, resign myself away from that. Uh, to the detriment, I think, of very clear mandates about love of neighbor. Yes. <laughs> Care for the marginalized, yeah. right? the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. Absolutely. What I hear, though, which is so wonderful, Joe, is an attentiveness to your audience and attentiveness to how people are receiving, not so much how you're performing the song, but how people are receiving it, how people are being nourished by it. And I think that's rare uh, for an artist, especially uh, in an age, I think, but it's every age, right? Where art can so often just be the vehicle of one's ego or the projection of (laughs) success or, you know, artistry. And I hear a, a much more communal vision of what art can do and what it's for, that this is a song that you want people to sing along with you. And uh, it's communal, right? And, uh, you know, Arcade Fire's new record is called We. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's for a reason. It's the sense of a more communal understanding of what, what art is for, what is there to communicate, which is bigger than the sovereign self and bigger than my own achievement. And so I, I, I find that remarkable. And and it's a hallmark of the entire record. I mean, all the way through, I think it's it's working in that level. Francis. He's in the room. He's in the title. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the story goes, he lives this life of cavalier frivolity. He's imprisoned, he's released, and told in a vision by Christ to repair the church, which is, you know, how's that for a mission statement or a life work? Repair the church. Is Repair that... the church. This is this is the story. I read Chesterton's biography about Francis years oh, ago, probably ten years ago. It? And his one on Aquinas is great too. But I, I, it's been long enough that I didn't remember that part. Yeah. Well, I hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get fact checked for this podcast. <laughs> but I, I guess there's so much we can lament, and yet I see this this song as wildly hopeful and desiring something of repair. And so I guess how, you know, if, if let's just prayerfully imagine with me, like in what ways could this song, would you hope this song could bring about some measure of repair, restoration, renovation in the world you see around you? I know that's a big question, but I think the song demands it. And um, yeah, I'd be just curious to hear how, how you see it kind of being an echo of, of its namesake. Yeah. Oh, man. During the recording process, Towards the the end of the recording process, I did a a series of tweets just talking about life after Trump. And what I was trying to get at, and if you if you go to my Twitter and try and find it, you won't because I delete all my tweets after 30 days because nothing <laughs> should live publicly beyond that. But okay, so Trump is, let's just put Trump over here for a moment. Let's talk about like North American evangelical evangelicalism. In our moment... The history of the people of God is this ebb and flow of disaster with moments of goodness. But, I mean, the judges, uh, the kings, all of the things like you would think by this point we would get that the desire for power is not where God is calling us. And yet, that's the moment we find ourselves in. The church is enthralled with power. It has been benefiting from a coziness and proximity to power for the entire history of this country. And when it feels that that power abate in any way, it casts a disgrievance, right? That's right. Suddenly, we're being persecuted. <laughs> we're being persecuted. <laughs> this, is a, this is an assault. Yeah. Um, you know. Which... I mean, it's easy to laugh 
it's easy for me to laugh I, at that. You laugh I, or cry. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and I get it though. Like if you've, if you do view that as normal and if you even make the mistake and it's an easy mistake to make to believe that that was God's will for America, because you've been taught that, like we all have all been From taught that cradle. our entire lives. Mm-hmm. And there's really not, there's not, there's not like, you know, big voices out there running well there are voices out there that are calling they're questioning that they're just not popular because no one wants to hear it and so you know that's why i love people like shane claiborne shane claiborne like he just lives it you know makes his own clothes (laughs) you know he he fashions gun metal into crosses the dude lives the undoing of our entanglement with power and i love it that's my hope for the church. And that's my hope for this song. And that's honestly, that's my hope kind of for the album. Like mm-hmm. there is a life after all of this stuff and it's way richer and it's way better. It's better. It will be better for us to be on the margins and not in a seat of, of privilege. It's going to be painful for sure. In some ways it's going to involve mm-hmm. for some people, it's going to involve like, here's a real one. The church should and will lose its tax exempt status. It would be a good thing for the church if that happened. I know that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but there's nothing biblically <laughs> that mandates that we should have some sort of governmental exemption for our existence. And further, everything Christ said about the future of what it means to follow Christ involves it being costly. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, tax exemption is literally the opposite of costly. (laughs) And so, you know, it it seems like it'll be hard. And yeah, it probably means that some people who have a salary now might not have a salary later, but the church, like this all just becomes opportunities for the church to live this song in in a way that matters. I just find find myself so exasperated with all the, the bullshit, you know, like the fact that any mention of race in the church that isn't automatically like, well, it's reverse racism or, you know, whatever is considered woke and written off. That is bullshit. That is so annoying. It's not intellectually defensible. It's not morally defensible. It's just nonsense. You know, like on one hand, like I have, (laughs) I have that tension, you know, Mm -hmm. where I will say things like what I just said. And I guess what I just said and the way I said it doesn't really live up to the song either. So, uh, the, the point is, I'm, 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 the song I'm, is for you too. It Jeff. is for me. Like I'm working this out. I, I want to work like this. I think about, I think about these words all the time. That's another reason why I wanted to make this. It's like, this is a song. It's a prayer that I aspire to. And I can, I can look at myself every day and say, oh, today was another day where I didn't really live up to that. Mm-hmm. But I still love the vision of it, and I still mm-hmm. want to try. You take my mind to Dorothy Day, who says, "I really only love God as much as I love the person I love least." So you know, as I think about, we're not naming names, but there are all sorts of names that go all the way up to Trump, right? That I have to put in that category and say, "Love thy neighbor," you know. And that doesn't mean all is forgiven, all is absolved. There isn't a lot of reckoning that needs to happen in the church and outside of the church. You know, I started this whole conversation about the the tradition because, Jill, you're doing the same work that Augustine had to do with the Roman Empire. I mean, he writes, he writes City of God because Christians of his age are freaking out. They're seeing empire crumbling around them. They've grafted their entire identity and sense of, you know, success to, to empire. And uh, he has to give them, he has to renew their imagination. He has to say, you know, you're citizens of a different kingdom. And that necessarily means, mm-hmm. you know, what your ambition is, what you tweet about, uh, how you spend your days should necessarily be different. And uh, so in the half light, right? Uh, you know, we can, we can, we can riff Tolkien here. I'm an English professor. <laughs> Tolkien says, you know, this, this entire journey is a long defeat, right? Hmm. To follow Jesus well necessarily looks like losing <laughs> in the eyes of the world. I mean, it takes Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And the rhyming that you're describing of wicked kings and Ahabs and charismatic leaders who fall, and it's just, there is this seemingly cyclical 
as much as I affirm the eschaton and the return of Jesus, just sensing that we're just in this rut and we just keep repeating. And any stone we might throw at the Israelites for their, you know, incompetence or blindsidedness, we can find in ourselves and in our modern day so readily. And I think that's what your record is interrogating or wanting to think about, a lack of definitive, you know, this this affirmation of creed. Uh, mm. And at the same time, a sense of like, we're in the shadow lands. We are, <laughs> you know, we, we are in half light. We're so limited. And I, I think at best that reads humility. I think, you know, David Foster Wallace talks about irony being the last virtue standing and how fashionable it is to just be sort of subversive and cynical about everything. And I think that's the tightrope walk that you found with this record is that interrogation of the half light without, but I don't read cynicism and that's in the record. And uh, that was so compelling to me and so welcome mm. and something I found so invitational and something that would, that made me want to sing along hmm. with, with, with the tracks, because I find that to be quite, I think the, the easier move is to just <laughs> whatever, man, <laughs> I'm done. Check yeah. out. And the harder, the harder journey is everything, everything you said earlier is I still find Christ compelling. I still want to wrestle with that angel. Um, maybe I'm not even sure exactly what that looks like, but I'm, I'm here, you know, and I want to sit in that and reside in that. Again, I'm it's the liter it's it's the literary professor podcast, everyone. Uh, <laughs> I got to go back to T.S. Eliot because I I share this with students a lot at Northwest University. Students who've been told their whole life that you either have faith or you have doubt, right? Hmm. And those should never commingle. Hmm. And I love T.S. Eliot's renovation of that when he says doubt is merely a variety of belief, right? Faith and doubt are not in opposition. It's nothing so pleasant, right? It's nothing so convenient. Um, if you're doubting, you're still in the game. Scripture affords, you know, what strikes me, Scripture affords Jesus himself a Gethsemane moment, a moment where he can say, like, take, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Mm -hmm. This is so compelling to me. And uh, Jude, be merciful to those who doubt. It's my God, my way. God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you me? forsaken me, right? And so if the Son of God is afforded that kind of residence in the, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. <laughs> yeah, And I have to fully then divest myself and invest in the will of the father. And this is the model he gives us of perfect trust, right? Per perfect submission to the will of the father on a cross. <laughs> that makes the Christian life compelling again. And, and, and just exposes, exposes the lie, mm -hmm. right? Exposes the ruse that so many of us, whether we've bought into it or not, is the water that we swim in aka this american religion uh this american uh, branding of uh, of something i find really sacred and beautiful and um and, and i'm with peter i mean where else do i have to go you know for words of eternal life yeah. yeah i i found myself with peter as well but yeah it's um i don't know i mean kind of looking around a little bit too and i mean i i won't pretend to say that i've read everything you know like i know uh, other people who've, who've gone and, and and read much much broader, really gone deep in in other religions. I just know enough to know that it's like okay, I was born in North America, so that means of all of the religions, I'm most likely to you know find myself in Christianity. It's kind of the it's the framework that I have grown up in, and it's home. You know, like it's for better for worse, it's home. And so for me, it wasn't so much like throw this whole thing out, although there's a lot of it that I want to throw out. Like I was thinking about the baby and the bathwater metaphor the other day. I was like, no, this is what we need to do. We need to like gently remove the baby from the water and like <laughs> swaddle the baby over here. And then we need to destroy the fucking bathroom. <laughs> and like that bathtub. Oh man, that bathtub. That bathtub needs to go. And uh, like we need a new the the whole construct like just demolish the house the bathroom is in and for the sake of like all of this just purely for the sake of i want to see the real thing mm -hmm. i'm tired so tired Th this is my issue jeremiah like i'm so tired of the bullshit mm -hmm. it gets so overwhelming to me mm -hmm. and it's so loud it's so loud and even when people aren't trying to be a part of it it comes out 
<sighs> I just long to see what's real. And I long to see, I think this is the heart of it. I want to see the people of Christ want to see that too. And I think that so many of them do, but I also think that it's, it's true that we've been fed a lot of BS and it's just all mixed in. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with that other than write songs and try and point people to it. Steiner, we live in an age committed to the systematic suppression of silence. Your record made me want silence in a way that I hadn't in a long time. Hmm. And sure, I can I can hear you that there's moments of cynicism in the record, but I think there's a difference between a cynicism that is sort of very Gen X, hands folded. You know, I'm just I'm just resigned from this, <laughs> and. You know, and I felt this record was much more of a just like into the breach. I'm throwing myself out there, and it was gutsy, and that's a that's a different sort of thing. I I need to f embellish my paradigm a little bit here because Elliot says you know faith and doubt. It's nothing so can nothing so pleasant. Um, but the but the real tension is is faith and despair, and what I'm not hearing on the record is despair. You know. Jaded, yes, because you have good reason to be. <laughs> I mean, if anyone knows your story, it can only elicit compassion. But at the same time, I think there's 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 a, a fire, a passion that is actually questing after the good, the right, and the beautiful, and the transcendentals that even the pagan knows are worth fighting for. And that takes you know a stiff upper lip, and that takes a sense of like I'm not going to put up with the rhetoric anymore. I'm not going to put up with the advertising. And I'm going to really try to make something that's genuine, authentic. And that's, you know, what brought me out here to Duval <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, sitting here with you recording this podcast is, I think a lot of people are hungry for it. I know my students are at Northwest university, a sense of I've received this inheritance called American Christianity, and it's not doing it for me, but this man, Jesus is still compelling. This man, Jesus, if anyone has something like an answer, something like the way, the truth, and the life, is this guy. And yet it's been so distorted, right? So bastardized that we've got to start to find approaches, new approaches. And I think those approaches are aesthetic. I think they're in the ways that I see you writing music and the way that I try to write poems that address this. And um, I, I commend you for it. I mean, it's it's given me giving me something like hope that um hmm. that we that we can see a way forward uh, not by our own ingenuity or prowess or winsomeness but that the lord is really showing us a new a new haven and a new pasture and that's my hope for it and that's why i want to talk about your record and hmm. get it out there i appreciate that i mean as you're talking what i what's coming to mind is just the the, the role the imagination plays in the way in our our way forward, hmm. if we've gotten ourselves into this mess via you know enlightenment, prepositional, <laughs> rationalistic mm -hmm. thinking, the imagination is a wonderful way out of that, and that is what ends up like keeping me in it. Is I can imagine the compassion of Christ. Mm -hmm. I can imagine the otherworldliness of Christ. I can imagine his peculiarities in mm -hmm. the face of mm -hmm. what would be considered norms. Mm -hmm. And that is where the good stuff is, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say it very eloquently. <laughs> and that kind of keeps me going. But when I think about us, like we, the people who are here right now, how do we access the imagination in ways that illuminate that more and you know there's people out there that are working hard to do this you know Absolutely. i'm certainly not the only one not and you are not no. 
but it's not it's not easily packaged <laughs> and and maybe that's not even like a okay let's just imagine for a moment that that's just a cop out like sometimes it just requires someone who's just really really good at it and i kind of feel like i'm just kind of like an ordinary songwriter so this this is a liturgy i do in all of my classes at northwest this is not at random this is wh auden uh profound christian in his own right high modernist poet 20th century think about the world that he's <laughs> seen about him uh this is a long poem so i'll give you the last two stanzas this is september 1st 1939 so the the, the eve the dawn of world war ii and auden writes all i have is a voice to undo the folded lie the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state. No one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice for the citizen or police. We must love one another or die. Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere. Ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed of them, of arrows and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. We must love one another or die. And Joe, I think I think this record is an affirming flame. Uh, during a season that's been really dark. So I commend you for it. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Understood as to.
Thanks for listening. The Half-Light Podcast is about my album, Half-Light. And if you don't yet have a copy and if vinyl is your thing, head over to my Bandcamp page at joday.bandcamp.com and use the code PODCAST, all lowercase, one word, to get 20% off your copy of Half-Light. It's printed on 140 gram black vinyl, and it sounds fantastic if I do say so myself. If you want to stay up to date with what I'm doing, Email is the best way. Head over to joedaymusic.com and sign up for my email list. I'm already working on the next thing, so there's going to be plenty to talk about in 2023. If you're interested in booking me, whether with my full band or just me in a living room or backyard, email booking at joedaymusic.com. On Instagram and Twitter, I am at joeday. You can find me there. And the Half-Light podcast is produced, edited, and scored by the one and only Jason Wagner. Jason does lots of other fun and interesting things with sound, and you can check out all of those at his website, oralfixation.me. A-U-R-A-L-F-I-X-A-T-I-O-N.me. That's it for now. Talk to you later.